What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the all-conquering, eternally victorious, unending love displayed in the person of Jesus Christ through His life, through His death, and through His resurrection. Thank You. Thank You that because of that love, the victory has been won. That all who come to the victor can come into His love. The love that provided the grace that enables the salvation that we can stand here and lift our voices and know of a certainty that the truth of what we were just singing and reading about in your word that if we are in Christ that's our truth and that that the power of the grave has been defeated, that the curse of sin has been removed, that the wrath of God the Father has been satisfied and the grace of God has been poured out in lavished profusion into our lives. Thank you. Thank you. I'm asking that what you would help us to do now as we are <clears throat> going to open up your word from the sixth chapter of Romans, that you would help this preacher 
to just, though I'm on the stage here, to not be the focus, not to distract, but that the Lord Jesus Christ would be lifted up. That the plan of God in His great grace would be spotlighted. That the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit that is in me as a follower would have freedom to speak and use my lips as his vessel. Fill me, Holy Spirit, I pray right now for the task at hand. Open hearts and minds to the truth, the blinders of the enemy that keep us from seeing what we need to see, anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, I pray that your penetrating truth communicated in power by your Holy Spirit would accomplish everything that you desire and achieve the purpose for which you send it today. Trust you to do that. Believe that you're going to thanking you for it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me hit one announcement uh, quickly here. I wanted the opportunity to share this uh, personally in your worship folder. If you just turn to the center of that on the left-hand page on the Right-hand side there toward the bottom, there's a program that we've got coming up called the King's Daughters Banquet. All of you that are fathers with girls of any age from young to maybe grown up with kids of their own, uh, we are encouraging you, dads, to get your daughter and come to the event here on February the 24th at 6th. Uh, we have some a great team working on this to make this a very, very memorable night for fathers and their daughters. It will be a kind of a high-class, five-star night. There will be a program. There will be great food. Uh, dads and daughters will be dressing up. There will be pictures, uh, I believe, taken uh, for them. And there will be some real challenge given to dads about the role of being a father to your daughters, regardless of what age they are. Opportunity to enter into a covenant uh, with your daughters. And I, I, as a daddy of two daughters, am looking forward to that night. I encourage you to be here then. Romans chapter 6. Let me give you a as quick as possible, but a little bit of a catch-up. Pretty important that I do that this morning because we're going to preach on, I'm going to preach on Romans chapter 6, verse 18 and 19 today, which obviously follows Romans chapter 6, verse... You guys are on it this morning. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, and it was four weeks ago that I preached on Romans chapter 6, verse 17. So we're going to need a little bit of a reminder here. 
in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, what Paul did there is he painted with his pen one of the, if not the clearest definitions or pictures of what a Christian life looks like in a condensed, short picture. And so we looked closely at that as we walked through that verse. And you notice if you're looking at that in your Bible that the key idea there is obedience. And so in looking at the Christian life and its chief characteristic of obedience, we looked at four different things. Number one, where did the obedience originate in the life of the Christian? And the answer to that was it originated from God. Secondly, what made their obedience possible? And the answer to that question was that what God did at salvation is that he gave us a new heart. He changed what was inside and rebellious and against God and living for self, and he gave us a brand new heart in that new creation, not a heart that is perfectly oriented toward God, but that is now at least oriented toward God and that really desires to please God, desires to do what God wants. Yes, still makes mistakes, still sins, but really is moving in a brand new direction. God made that possible by giving us a new heart. Thirdly, what did they obey? And what they obeyed, Paul said in verse 17, is the standard of teaching. And we looked closely at what that was. The standard of teaching kind of painted a picture of that is that it is the standard that really gets its structure from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he was, how he lived, what he did. So the standard of teaching, if you could put that in flesh and bones, it would be Jesus. He is the standard of teaching. And then, fourthly, how was their obedience accomplished? And the way that their obedience or our obedience is accomplished is that what God did, and we looked at the word their form or standard closely, and the word is talking about a mold, one of the best descriptions of it. And so the picture is this, that God takes our life after we have committed ourselves to Christ and he's given us a new heart, then he takes our life and he begins to melt it down in his furnace and he pours it into the mold of Jesus Christ so that we take on more and more the shape, the character qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ with his goal being that we would become like Jesus Christ. It is his goal for every single Christian. So the end of that message was, so what is kind of a definition for a Christian then as Paul painted those pictures, it is this. It is a life that shows its desire to please God through increasing obedience to the truth of Jesus Christ. Not a life that is living out perfect obedience to Jesus Christ, nor a life that is not living out any obedience to Jesus Christ. The point being, if you are truly saved, 
your heart is truly remade, oriented toward God, though you are still going to be struggling on this earth with sin, you have a new direction and you're heading toward God. And so what that did was that it brought up a subject for us. It brought up this subject. What then does God do when the believer sins or begins to walk into a pattern of repetitive sin? And so we stopped at verse 17 and took three Sundays and talked about divine discipline and what God does when we, by an act of our will, turn off of the path of obedience and begin to pursue our own sinful agenda. So now we're coming back, having finished that discussion, to verse 18. And what we're going to see is that verse 18 is a perfect complement to verse 17. I'm going to read 17, 18, and 19 together here, and then we'll jump in. Paul writes in verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So look down at verse 18. What we're going to see here is just a statement of the principle. And then later in verse 19, we're going to look at the particulars of the principle. But the principle here in verse 18 is this. And having been set free from sin, the believers have become slaves of righteousness. You see, this verse just carries on with what Paul was doing in verse 17. He said, how are we obedient? It's all because of God. How does that work? God gives us a new heart oriented toward Him. Then He gave us Jesus Christ to present the model and the pattern. And then He takes our lives through the work of Christ's Spirit and God's truth, and He shapes and molds us into Christ. It's really all about primarily the work of God, salvation, exclusively the work of God, but even our sanctification, our growth after salvation is first and foremost the work that God is doing. And we, in a secondary role, participate with Him. That is the consistent teaching throughout the Scriptures. And here in verse 18, look at what it says. Having been set free from sin have become slaves to righteousness. The literal meaning there is, we're enslaved to righteousness. Do you see the kind of verbs that those are? They are passive verbs, meaning not something that we do, something that is done to us. It's the work of God that does this, has set us free from sin, and has enslaved us to righteousness. It's the work of God that does that. 
That is the consistent teaching all throughout the scriptures. Let me read a verse, Titus 2, 11 and 12. Titus wrote, for the grace of God has appeared. There's the culprit. There's the subject matter, the grace of God. And what has it done? Number one, bringing salvation for all people. Number two, the grace of God, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice the operative force there. Who is involved and through what power is both our salvation accomplished and our sanctification carried forward? The answer is it's the grace of God that does both of those. Verse 19 now, kind of a statement of the principle. Now we're going to begin a moment here to look at the particulars. Verse 19, Paul says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. What Paul did here is that he reminded them of a principle that he had talked about a few verses earlier, and the principle is this, all humanity are slaves. We fit into one of two camps. We are either slaves of sin or we are slaves to righteousness, slaves to Jesus Christ unto righteousness. That is the only two camps that humanity can fit within. You may not like that and say, well, I'm not in one of those camps. The Bible says differently. You are either a slave to sin in bondage, hopeless, helpless, unable to break that control, or you are, by the work of God, made at salvation a slave unto righteousness. And the point of the principle is this, slaves obey. Slaves obey. So he uses the negative principle that they clearly understood, having been a slave to sin, understanding they couldn't break that power, and he uses that principle and he says, the principle works on the other side too. When you become a slave of righteousness, when God does that work, you are going to obey. In other words, if you're not obeying, I don't mean perfectly, but if there is no fruit of obedience in your life, then you can say with truth, you are not saved. Because it comes with the package. Not are, are you obeying perfectly, not do you never fail and blow it? No. But is your heart oriented toward God? Do you desire, even though you're still struggling with sinful tendencies, do you desire to please God? And are there some fruits that are showing that? Some external fruit that proves that the root is there. So he uses that principle to set up the truth that he wants to communicate in verse 19, the principle of slavery. 
that works on both sides of the equation. So he is using this comparison here. <coughs> I want to just point out four words. In verse, the, the, the third line down, just as, there's the negative side of the principle, talking about prior to salvation. But then down, third line from the bottom, so now. Just as, so now. That's his comparison. Just as it was true then, so now it is to be true under your new slavery. So we're going to run with that illustration here. Now, what I am not saying, please hear this <clears throat> clearly. I am not saying that you have nothing to do in the process of your sanctification. I'm not saying that because it's a work, the sovereign work of God, both to save you and then to carry forth the plan of sanctification of your growth, that you can then just check out and say, I don't need to have a part in this. Quite the contrary. What Paul is doing here is he is, we're going to talk about this in a minute, he's giving you a command. He's very explicitly telling you that you've got to do something here. So accept the fact that it's the sovereign work of God that accomplishes your salvation, and it's the sovereign work of God that carries forward your sanctification. But in the work of sanctification, you are to be joining God in obedience to what He is doing. You have a part to play in that. Let me state that another way with some key lines here to make this as clear as I can to grasp the full weight of this. Not simply does the continuing grace of God make it possible for us to obey. It is not just that the continuing grace of God gives us the desire to obey. It is not just that the continuing grace of God convicts us when we disobey. And it is not just the continuing grace of God that helps us get back on the path and learn how to obey again. All of that is true, but it doesn't end there. The point here in the principle of slavery is this. It is the God of grace who makes certain that the obedience becomes a reality. That was the purpose of the last three weeks. To say that God loves us too much when we turn away from Him and we begin to walk into disobedience. He will not just let us go. He will apply out of love divine discipline, even discipline if we will not listen that is very painful so that he can bring us back and through his sovereign power help us to walk in the reality of obedience. That is the truth that he is driving home here. So, ladies and gentlemen, let this be true. Let the sovereignty of God give you the hope that change is possible not convince you that no change is necessary. Said another way, 
do not jump to the conclusion because of the sovereignty of God that the battle is just a charade. Do not assume that because it does not depend upon what I choose ultimately, that it doesn't depend upon what I choose at all. There is a difference between those two. Ultimately, it depends upon God, but don't then jump to the conclusion that because it ultimately depends upon God, that none of it depends upon me. That's what chapter 6 is all about. Verse 1 and verse 15. Hey, let's go out and party and live in sin because grace is going to win anyway. And Paul is writing the chapter to say, absolutely wrong conclusion. What the sovereignty of God and the power of His grace should do is that it should say to us, this is possible. We're partnering up with God here. And we don't need to get beat around by this. We have given to us through the power of God and through this, His initiative and cooperative work, we don't have to just roll over and get kicked in the teeth by sin anymore. Okay, verse 19 again. Let me read it. And I want to look at a term or two specifically. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Present your members. We looked at that term earlier, a few verses earlier, several weeks ago. And that term members, it is inclusive of the physical members of your body, but that's not all that it means. It also is talking about your mind and your emotions and your feelings and your susceptibilities. It's really talking about your whole personality, who you are, what makes up you. And what Paul says here is that you are to take all of that that makes up you, your physical components of your body, your mind, your will, your emotions, the aspects of your personality, your susceptibilities, your faculties, you're to take all of those and you are to be enslaved to Christ unto righteousness in all of those faculties, in all of those elements of your personality. And here's a great truth that I want to pull out of that, a truth that means so much to me, so much to me as a man. I think this will mean potentially more, well, at least the way I'm going to present it, maybe more to, to the men of the room here. Christianity does not flush your personality 
when you become a Christian, it is not the intent of God that he takes all of us and makes us uniform. That he removes the individuality and uniqueness of who we are. Look, he created us like this. I got two of my boys sitting right here that are radically different. That's by the creative work of God. God, it's one of the aspects of his of his greatness, of his majesty, his creative fiat that makes every sunset different. That has every landscape painting a different scene, every face of every child unique. He doesn't want to take you when that God that's creative like that made you just who you are, no one else like you. And when you get saved, he doesn't want to take all of us and then just cookie-cutter us into the same shape, the same style, the same color, the same texture. What would a painting be like that one color was used, one texture, one shape, Here's the, maybe here's the, the lie that I'm trying to identify. I believe that this is true in a segment of our culture. That there are men who shy away from Christianity because what Christianity means to them through somebody else's wrong teaching or just the enemy's lie is that if you become a Christian, you're going to get emasculated. That if you become a Christian, you cannot be a man's man anymore. You kind of have to turn into this kind of wallflower kind of a guy. Folks, that is so far from the truth. It is Christianity that enables you to become all that you can be. It's not the Marines. It's Christ that does that. I mean, look at our leader. I mean, let's just talk about our leader for a minute. There was never a man like him. He was the toughest, baddest dude who ever walked the planet. I mean, do you understand that? He never backed down. Not one time. He never backed away. Not one time. He was the one that came to pick the fight. He was the one that came to go right into the camp of the enemy. He was the one who single-handedly said, I am going to take out the forces of evil alone. He is the one that was never manipulated by anybody else's plan for his life because a lot of people had plans for his life. 
At one point, they wanted to come and make him king by force. But he didn't care about popularity. He didn't care about what anybody else was thinking. He knew why he was here, and he set his face like a flint toward the mission, and he never wavered one step. And along the way, what he did is that he protected the unprotected, that he went to rescue the brokenhearted and the downtrodden, and those that were being mistreated and beat up, he defended them. And when he turned his back toward the whip, he was doing it to take your punishment so you didn't have to. And then he set his face toward a hill outside of Jerusalem. And he bent down and he put that great weapon on his shoulder and he drug it to the top of the hill. And then he put it in his arms, literally pinning his arms to it. And he aimed it at Satan and his forces. And the Bible says that what happened on that hill was not his defeat. That Christ disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He took Satan out and all of his forces. He is the greatest leader that ever drew a breath. Today, billions follow him. Today, millions would die for him in a moment. Christianity is not a wimpy religion. It is what calls men up to be what they are supposed to be. It's what calls men up to respect and honor and cherish the weaker. It's what calls men to give of themselves sacrificially to help those that they are protecting and providing and guiding. It is the one force on the planet that makes men into what they are really supposed to be, true men. I am so glad for that because if, I'm a man's kind of a man, and if Christianity was the wallflower, you know, I just, my natural tendency, I'd be running the other direction. Guys, listen. I know there are, I think what happens there is we, we see some maybe Christian men that don't look like the model that we would want to be, but you don't change your personality. You don't change your personality. Listen to this. It's the members that you once presented that are still the members that you now present. You didn't get a new set of members. 
the members are your bodily members, but your mind and your faculties and your propensities and your personalities and your masculinity. You don't flush those. They just get redeemed to do what they're supposed to be doing. God does not save us to make us uniform and ambiguous and nondescript and without any identification of our individuality of who we are. When he saves us, he helps us to become who we really were intended to be and for the great aspects of our personality unique personality to stand out. Look, Peter, James, and John went up the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus Christ. And when, when they were up there, they saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Remember that story? And what does it say that Peter, James, and John saw this nondescript, ambiguous kind of floating spirit that two of them that were, no, they saw Moses and Elijah, still the people, the men that they were coming down from glory to talk to Jesus Christ you are not going to be something less than you are as you grow in your Christianity. If you are questioning Christianity, man, you're not going to get saved and then become a wallflower. You're going to become a much better man than you ever were. Paul, look at this, look at this illustration. The apostle who was Saul of Tarsus. What was Saul of Tarsus like? Saul of Tarsus was a venomous persecutor. He was a guy that 99% was never enough. He was a guy that went 101% in everything that he did. He had excelled above all of his peers of his age. His mind was sharp. His reasoning skills were almost unmatched. Maybe they were unmatched. He was aggressive. He was proactive. He was so zealous. He was on the way to Damascus so he could kill and imprison some more Christians and separate their families and take their belongings. And then he met Jesus Christ. Showed up on the road. Knocked him. Knocked him on his keister is what he did. Blinded him. He moped around in blindness for three days and then God sent a man to give him his sight and here's what happened. Paul got saved and became this kind of nondescript, passive, little 
preacher that really didn't want to offend anybody's feelings, right? No, no. That guy came out of the chute of Christianity with a vengeance. It said immediately in Damascus, the place where he was going to imprison and to kill, he went and began immediately to baffle the Jew, arguing from the Scriptures, proving that Jesus was the Christ. He didn't flush his personality. It became all that it was intended to be. And that pedal to the metal guy took those members that had been living in bondage to sin and those got redeemed by Christ and they became venomous members to promote the cause of Christ. Here's the guy that gets stoned gets dragged out of the city and gets stoned and left for dead. And then they leave and he gets back up and he walks right back into the city. Guy was a stud, man. I beat that long enough, but I'm telling you that fires me up as a man. Look, Christian men, God is calling you up. He's calling me up to be the men that we were intended to be. Forget about selfish living and start cherishing and honoring and protecting and leading and caring for our wives and our children to say, it's my responsibility to love her. It's my responsibility to train up my children, my boys and my girls in the way they should go. It's my responsibility to put the cross of Christianity on my shoulders and follow my leader. Now, I'm about ready to start with my four points now. Four things I want to say to you about verse 19, the particulars. If you're writing down, just take these really quick. What verse 19 is doing, it is telling us the principles of sanctification and holiness. There are principles inherent in this verse that teach us about sanctification and holiness. And the first one is this that's a command. That's a command. And the command is present your members as slaves to righteousness. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you one sentence and I'm going to start at the end of the sentence and start putting it together piece by piece, working backward. Here's the last two words to the sentence that's inherent in this principle and it is this. It's a command. Do this. 
do this. Here's the second principle here. And it's implicit in the command. And it's this, that the command is possible. Do you understand what I'm saying there? If God told you in his word to do this, it means what? It means that you can do this. So the two words before do this is you can. You can do this. What 19 part B says. Here's number three. Notice that the command is based upon what has already happened. Not what will or can happen. You see, the command of verse 19 is predicated on, is built on, it flows out of the truth of verse 18. And the truth of verse 18 says this. Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. In other words, based upon what has already happened, you can do this. Based upon the fact that God has already freed you from sin's dominion and control and bondage and has taken you now and has made you a slave of righteousness, based upon that reality comes the command, you can do this. If verse 18 wasn't true, you could not do this. And you know, that's the consistent teaching of Scripture. Peter, 2 Peter. I want to read a few verses here. 2 Peter 1.3. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us what? Church, all things. Look at those three statements there. Has granted. What does that mean? Past, present, or future? Past. Has granted. Accomplished fact. Settled reality. Done deal. God has done this if you're a believer. Number two, to whom has he granted it? To us. Who does that mean? It means the believer, the Christian not some upper echelon special few. It means everyone who is a part of Christ, who has been baptized into Christ. To all of them, God has granted. And how much has He granted? All things. Let me just give you that in one statement. To all Christians, all things have already been given. Let me say that again. To all Christians, all things have already been given. Here's why. Because all of the riches of God are found in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you were baptized into Christianity, you were baptized into Christ. So if you are in Christ, you have got all things because Christ is the key for the all things. So if you're in them 
If you're in him, you have them. Now I'm going to gently, hopefully gracefully, just make a statement here about a belief that runs against this grain that is a part of you know, the Protestant church in some venues. And it's this idea that there needs to be a second experience, something that happens after Christianity, a second experience that that is going to be the key to us living a holy, sanctified life. The problem is, it's not here. Paul doesn't say anything about a second experience. He said, this has already happened to you if you are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, it's all been made available to you. And you don't need to go around searching for that magic pill. You just need to access what has already been made available. It's laid out before you. The problem is not we have to have another experience to get to it. The problem is we just don't access it. We don't apply it. It's all been made available. Let me show you in Peter again here. 2 Peter 1, 5 and 6, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. God did the work of salvation, but now what I want you to do is I want you to add to that your own efforts here. 2 Peter 1, 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you see what he's doing here? He's doing the same thing that Paul did in Romans 6, verse 19. Paul said, because of this truth of what God has already done, verse 18, now what I'm doing is I'm commanding you to do this here, verse 19. Peter says, because of what God has already done, 2 Peter 1, verse 3, here is what I'm commanding you to do, to add to your faith, da 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 And then he says, and let me show you the negative side of the principle. The negative side of the principle is this. If you forget, if you forget what's happened to you, 2 Peter 1.9, if you forget where you've come from and who you are in Christ, what's going to happen is that you're going to begin to be ineffective and unproductive in your Christian life. You're not going to be growing in holiness and growing in sanctification. Folks, here's the, here's the big point of all of this. The big point is that the key to holiness, the key to this process of sanctification is that you have to know who you are in Christ. All of your ability to be equipped and empowered is going to be directly connected to your understanding of who you are in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul 
before he tells us what to do, he develops this whole letter to get solidly in our minds. Here is who you are if you're a Christian. Here is what God has already done. Here is what has happened to you. Here's the position from which you are operating now. And because of that truth, now go out and start living it. Basically, he's saying this. Would you just be who you already are? Would you just be what God has already? You don't have to make it up. You don't have to manufacture it. It is already your reality. Now, would you just live like it? That's the truth that liberates. Because if you think you've got to accomplish it, you've tried that before. Before you were saved, you can't get it done. But if you know that God has already done this, that you are already in Christ, that you are already a joint heir of Christ, that already the power of the resurrection is already working in you, and that all of it is available to you, that you're already seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. When you understand those things, that you already have authority over the enemy, then you don't have to get kicked around anymore. You can square your shoulders and say, I'm moving forward. And if I take a step left or right and blow it, I'm going to make a correction and I'm getting back on the path because I know I'm winning the game with Christ. It's already an accomplished reality. And all I have to do is just make sure that I keep my face pointed in the right direction and God's going to work in me and through me to get it done. See, that's the truth here. That's the truth here. So the statement is this then, we said do this, back up a little, you can do this, back up a little more, because of who you are in Christ, you can do this, and back up one more, it is when you know the truth of who you are in Christ that you can do this. That's going to be the key. It's not the only thing, but that is the primary foundation upon which you're going to be able to live the way Christ wants you to live. Man, it's going to be the primary foundation on you being the man that you need to be in your home and the husband you need to be to your wife and the dad you need to be to your kids. It is when you understand the truth about who you are in Christ that you will be able to do what you're told to do in Scripture. But if you approach your Christian life with a fatalistic man, it really doesn't matter what I do anyway. God's going to win it ultimately. And I've tried before, and I just kind of fail and get beat around. So I'm just going to sit back and kind of wait for heaven. <laughs> Come on, guys. Come on. Let's toughen up. Let's get serious about what we're doing here. I mean, we're supposed to lead the charge here, not fill the bank. We're supposed to provide spiritual leadership and direction and protection for our families. We need to quit whipping out. It's going to matter one iota 
when you stand before the greatest leader that ever drew breath and you say, man, I got 500 grand in the bank. Big deal. But if you can say, I got my wife right here and I got my kids right here and they're radically committed to being what you want them to be. That great leader is going to say, well done, well done. Now, let me, let me say this. I am preaching at Brad right here. Please understand that. I'm so, I'll use the nice word, I'm so incensed at myself for falling so short of this. But I am, I'm making some changes to step up. Guys, you need to make some changes to step up. You need to make some changes to step up. To take the weight on your back. To take the hits for some things. To bar the door of your homes and say, not here. Not on my watch. when you do that and you begin to walk in that the power of God is going to be unleashed and what you could never do you will do and the authority that you've got as the headship of the home is going to begin to have its impact I'm not just talking to men here, though, but I'm certainly talking to men. We all need to step up as followers to present our members, our faculties, the aspects of who we are fully to God, fully to Christ toward righteousness. Ladies, if you're in a home where your husband is not walking with you spiritually, you have a father and you have a lover in Jesus Christ, then you need to throw yourself upon him. Yes, pray for your husband. The key for you is just to be who God wants you to be. To run toward him and trust that he knows all about where you're at and what's going on.
and he's bigger than your situation. He's bigger. And somehow in his sovereignty, he is able, but not only able, he will work all things for your good as you live out a love relationship with him. That is the promise of God. stand up let's wrap this up I didn't intend to get so fired up but I'm not apologizing for it let me pray for you God, do a, do a new thing. Do a mighty work in the life of this church through the power and the work of your Spirit taking your word to burn up the chaff, Lord. Would you wake up blind eyes and hardened hearts and lethargic spirits and you send out a strong call that grips the heart of strong men and calls them calls them to a high place to a hard climb to a diligent effort give them the clarity to see the payoff to have eyes set on what will be not on what is looking to what is unseen and not what is seen. Because what is unseen is temporary. But what, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Give guys the courage to live today for the final day. Not be after their own pleasures and their own pursuits. but to be after a great influence and a legacy to it God do it thank you Jesus for being the leader
thank you for being strong enough. We're never going to understand this. What we do understand is so shocking. But thank you for being strong enough to say, I will drink the cup of the wrath of God dry. I will drink damnation dry to save humanity. Here I am, Father, send me. Thank you, Lord. Have your way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.